1 Corinthians 14, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe and the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played? Unless there is a distinction of, in the notes. Again, if the trumpet doesn't sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try and excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever and inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, They are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really amongst you. 
What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Thank you, Rosemary. Uh, Well, it's another big chapter that we have before us. Somehow I let Nick have 13 verses last week and I gave myself 40 verses this week. I really do bring this on myself. Uh, So let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Father, we thank you that your word shapes us and instructs us and we pray that it might do its work in us tonight. But we also pray that your word would not just shape us as individuals, but would shape our church. Bring this word, Lord, to bear in our lives as a body, the body of Christ, so that we might honour him in all we do, especially when we come together. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Many years ago now, after church one morning, I found myself speaking to a spinal surgeon, a heart surgeon and a hand surgeon. And if you think this is the beginning of a joke, well, it sort of is because I asked them, you know, give us your best medical story. Give us your best kind of surgical story. And uh, this one was the winner by far. The hand surgeon spoke up straight away and he said one one time he was uh, driving to work, driving to the hospital where he was working at the time. And as he was driving along, he saw a man trimming the, the front hedge of his home, but he was doing it with his lawnmower. He picked up his lawnmower around the body, his hands round underneath, his fingers were underneath where the blades are, and was holding it up and kind of trimming the hedges as he was going. And at that point, my friend, the hand surgeon, said, I had a premonition that today was going to be a busy day. (laughs) And he was right. Within an hour, he got the call, someone's come into the hospital, and they've managed to sever all eight of their fingers. 
And he went down to, to see this person and said, yeah, what, uh, what, how, do you, how'd you do it? And the person said, well, I was mowing the lawn and I saw the hedge needed a trim. And so I thought, I've got a great idea. I'll pick up the lawnmower. Uh, anyway, my, my friend goes uh, back upstairs to, to get ready because that's a pretty serious amount of surgery. Uh, lots of surgeons, lots of people are going to need to come in. All sorts of work needs to be done. He gets a call from the nurse saying, I need you to come down. Someone's just come in who's cut off all eight of their fingers. And, and he said, no, no, it's okay. I've spoken to him already and I'm, I'm already started to get ready. No, 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 the nurse says. It's another person. So he goes downstairs and, and sure enough, it's another bloke and says... Right, well, how did this happen? And he says, well, you know, I was driving along the road and I knew the hedges needed a trim and I saw this guy who'd had a great idea. (laughs) Now, what does that have to do with 1 Corinthians 14? Well, the church in Corinth is like a man trimming his hedges with a lawnmower. Uh, The church in Corinth has been given all these amazing gifts by the Holy Spirit. All these incredible gifts, these powerful gifts, these impressive gifts, but they are using them wrong. And like a man using a lawnmower to trim hedges, they are doing tremendous damage to themselves as a church in the process. Instead of these gifts being used for the common good, chapter 12, verse 7, to build up each other, instead they are using their spiritual gifts to metaphorically Cut the body into pieces. Uh, Two weeks ago we saw eyes are saying to hands, I don't need you. Heads are saying to feet, I don't need you. Chapter 12, verse 21. And in fact, the damage being done is so great that some people within the Corinthian church are even beginning to say that maybe I don't belong, maybe because I don't have certain spiritual gifts, that I'm not really part of the body. Chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. You know, the church in Corinth is like a a spiritual horror movie. Body parts are just flying everywhere. And this is an enormous tragedy. Because as Paul has made clear, the Holy Spirit gave these gifts to bring them together, not to tear them apart. Uh, These gifts were given to teach them that they need one another, every single one of them. And yet these spiritual gifts are the very thing that is now tearing them apart. But last week we saw why. Last week we saw the real heart of the problem. And the problem was the heart. The problem was their lack of love. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 and we saw the iron fist of the apostle wrapped in the velvet glove of the love poem of 1 Corinthians 13. Every single clause carefully crafted to point to the Corinthians, a tailor-made scathing rebuke for their lack of love towards each other. And again and again, Paul has shown them that they are a church that lacks love. Chapter 12, love is what they lacked as they let their spiritual gifts divide them. Chapter 11, love is what they lacked as they disrespected each other over head coverings and as they came together for their communal meals. Chapter 10, love is what they lacked as they used their freedoms selfishly for themselves and not for the good of others. Chapter 8, love is what they lacked. They let their knowledge puff themselves up, but they would not build up each other in love. The Corinthians lacked love. 
That's the heart of their problem. And so what does a loving church look like? Well, actually, in some ways, that's what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is, is written to answer. And in fact, it'd be well worth the time, if you've got it, to go all the way back to the beginning of our series, back to chapter 8, or even earlier, go all the way back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and just kind of read through again, and actually see how much healthier and happier and holier the Corinthians would be if they just loved one another, if they followed the, the excellent way of love that Paul outlined for us last week in chapter 13. But what is the loving way to meet together as a church? What's the loving way to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us? And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. He has for us some very clear instructions. And I think he says three things in particular that are coming up on the, on the screen behind me now. Three uh, main things that he wants to say to us. He wants to say that the church that love builds, it's three things. One, it's edifying. That's the key word of the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 14. But two, the, the church that love builds, it's not just edifying, it's intelligible. That's the key word of verses 1 to 25. And the church that love builds is not just edifying, it's not just intelligible, it's also orderly. That's the key word of verses 26 to 40. So please keep your Bibles open to, to 1 Corinthians 14. And let's just kind of walk through those things one by one, shall we? But firstly then, the church that love builds is edifying. Uh, edifying is, or edification, to edify, it's the key word of the whole chapter. It's there in verse 3, hidden behind the word strengthening. It's there twice in verse 4. It's in verse 6. It's in verse 17. It's in verse 31. It's also there in verse 12 and in verse 26. And both times there, it's translated as build up. Uh, because that's actually what the word edify literally means. It literally means to, to build up. Uh, it really is a word from the building industry. It's a construction term. Uh, to edify means to, to build a house or uh, to build a home or even perhaps to, to build a temple. You know, it's talking about the ordinary things like, you know, laying a foundation, putting up the walls, maybe retiling the bathroom or maybe knocking out a wall so that you can extend and, and put another room on. Anything really that makes a home stronger or more beautiful or even bigger. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's a really subtle thing that's going on in these chapters. Uh, back in chapter 12, Paul described the church as a body, uh, one body with many parts, with many members. Uh, but here you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, that image has actually faded from view. And there's a, a really subtle hint now of the church being like a home, like a family home. A home that we're all part of building up. We're all part of this construction project together. A home that is being built and strengthened and beautified and even extended as, as those who might be inquirers or even unbelievers come in. Now, one thing that's really interesting that you might not know is that the Holy Spirit has always been interested in building the church. And so if you go back to Exodus chapter 31, Exodus 31 you'll actually get the first example in the Bible of the Holy Spirit giving gifts and abilities to people. As he, when the Spirit gives to Bezalel, son of Uri, and his assistants, all sorts of skills and abilities as craftsmen. The Holy Spirit gives them the ability to work in metal and, and stone and, and in wood so that they can do what? 
so they can build the tabernacle. They can build the place where Israel would gather together to meet with their God and be instructed in the gospel, how God had saved them and how they now were to live as his people. And here now in 1 Corinthians 14, the Holy Spirit is really doing the same thing, not gifting craftsmen with the abilities to to work in wood or stone or metal, but gifting abilities to individuals so that we might build a new people for Jesus. Jesus himself said, I will build my church. And the Holy Spirit continues his work. And often in the book of Acts, as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed, the church literally is edified or it's built. It's built both as it grows in numbers, as more and more people come in and and put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus, and it grows in maturity as people are conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ Jesus as they are strengthened and encouraged and instructed and comforted, as verse 3 suggests. And really, the overwhelming implication of this passage we have before us tonight is that this is what you will want to do if you are following the excellent way of love that Paul outlined for us last week. If you are following the way of love, then you will want to build the church. That's what you will seek to do with whatever gifts the Holy Spirit has given you. And you will even seek the gifts, you will seek the abilities, you will even pray for them, the ones that excel at building up the church. In other words, you won't be in this Christianity thing just for what you can get out of it. You won't be part of a church just because of how they can serve you. You'll be here because of how you can serve others, how you too can give, how you too can build up the church. You won't be self-centered. You won't be in it just for you because love is never self-seeking. If you're pursuing the way of love, you can't be like that. Of course, it will be good for you too, but it can't just be for what it does for you. If you're pursuing the way of love, you'll be part of the church for what you can do for others. You'll be in it to build the church. That's what Paul is saying. Because it is possible to just edify yourself when you're in church. Have a look at verse 4, would you? Have a look at verse 4. And just listen to the way that Paul uses that build up word again. Verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. You see, it is possible to come to church and just to seek to edify and build up yourself. But if you're following the way of love, why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to do the things that edify everyone, that edify the whole church? Things done for self are just not the most important thing. Uh, Self-edification is not wrong. It's not sinful. Uh, Paul doesn't forbid it. But nor is it the top of your agenda when you're pursuing the way of love. What's top of your agenda then is what you can do for others, how you can build them up. Now, all of this sets up for us the central tension that is there in verses 1 to 25. And that's the tension between two different gifts, 
Two different uh, ways of, of speaking. The tension between prophecy, uh, that Paul says does build up the church, and speaking in tongues, that Paul says, uh, not evil, not wrong. In fact, Paul in verse 18 says that he does it more than anyone else, but they're just not as useful for building up the church. Now, why is that? So why is prophecy somehow superior in building up the church to speaking in tongues? Uh, And the key difference is my second point. The key difference is intelligibility. Prophecy is intelligible. Prophecy is understandable. And tongues, Paul says, is not. Uh, And for a church that love builds to be edifying, it must also be intelligible. It must be in a language that people can understand. Pick it up with me from verse 1. Just again, listen now to how Paul talks about understanding. Verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, that is, their edification, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Prophecy can be understood, so it can edify the church. Tongues can't be understood, and so it can't edify, can't build up the church, unless someone can interpret the tongue, in which case now it is understandable, and so now it seems to almost be as useful as prophecy, if not as useful as prophecy, when it comes to building up the church. Uh, Reinforcing that really the key idea here is, can you understand the words? Is it it intelligible? Is it in in a language that you can understand? Now, so far, I haven't defined anything. I haven't defined prophecy. I haven't defined speaking in tongues. And I know that you're itching for me to get there. I know that's what some of you are here for tonight. Uh, But even without understanding exactly what these two different types of speech are, I hope you can see the issue. What happens in church, if it's to build us up, it must be understandable. It must be intelligible. Intelligible speech like prophecy is what you will prefer if you are following the excellent way of love. Paul has no objections to speaking in tongues. He's not forbidding it. Paul's just evaluating the two on their effectiveness in building the church. But why is it important that it's intelligible? Why is it important that the words are, are understood? Well, I take it it's important because of the very nature of the gospel itself. You see, if salvation was by works, if salvation was something that we could achieve by our our own activities and our own efforts, then all that would matter is that you do the works. You don't necessarily need to understand what you were doing or even why you were doing it. All that would matter is that you do the works. And so let me give you an example of this. Uh, I have a cousin of mine, and and my cousin is Greek Orthodox. Uh, He he didn't start out that way. 
In fact, when you speak to him, he grew up in London and he speaks with a, a strong a British accent. Uh, but he, and he never really showed much inclination or, or interest in the things of God, but he did show a lot of inclination and interest in a Greek Orthodox girl, and so he converted to Greek Orthodoxy in order to marry her. And I went to the baptism. I was best man at his wedding, and I still have no real idea what happened at either of them. Uh, I mean, I kind of roughly knew what was going on. I marry people, I, I baptize people all the time, but it certainly took a lot longer than when I do them, there was a lot more incense and everything was made of gold. It just was very strange. Uh, everything was in Greek. And so neither I nor my cousin actually understood a thing that was going on, uh, but it didn't matter. As long as we kind of stood in the right place and, and did the right thing at the, at the right kind of time, then everything was okay. All that mattered was just the activity. If salvation is by works, it doesn't matter whether or not you understand what's happening. It just matters that you do the right thing. But if salvation is by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast, then I do need to understand, don't I? I do need to understand what it is I'm repenting of. I do need to understand what it is that I'm putting my faith in, what it is that I'm trusting. And I do need to know more than anything else, the person that I'm trusting. I need to know Jesus. I need to know him. I need to have a relationship with him. And how can I do that if I cannot hear him speak to me and understand? And how can I do that if I cannot speak to him in words that I can understand. You can only be made more like Jesus if you can understand who he is and what it is that he has done for us at the cross. And so when you come to church, you have to be able to understand the words. It's as simple as that. Now Paul hammers away at this point for uh, quite a few verses yet. In verses 6 to 17, he, he goes at it in a few different ways. Verse 9, he says, So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Verse 16, he says, How can they say amen to your prayers unless they can understand the words that you're praying? In verses 18 and 19, Paul actually even gives us the exact numerical ratio of how much more important intelligible words are than speaking in tongues. I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now you get the point, don't you? It's pretty kind of clear what he's talking about here. Just to kind of make it practical for you, I bought a $5 note in. Anyone care to give me $10,000 for this $5 note? It's ridiculous, isn't it? You'd never do that. And so why would you speak in tongues in church when you can instead speak in a language that people can understand? And Paul is very stern with them about this. In verse 20, he says, Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Grow up. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. For the Corinthian church, their lack of love means that they are far too mature in their sins but when it comes to their love when it comes to their knowledge their thinking 
They are immature. They're like selfish children. And really, I think what's going on here is that the Corinthian church are very zealous for speaking in tongues. It, whatever it is, and we haven't defined it yet, is very impressive in their eyes. It's very important to them. It's something that they're much taken in by. Uh, And it's probably the very gift that was dividing the church uh, back in chapter 12, and that would fit. Uh, Tongues, Paul says, is a very self-focused gift, and Corinth was a very self-focused church. And so really what all that Paul is trying to do here is redirect their zeal. He's trying to redirect their, their zeal for speaking in tongues towards something that will build up the church, towards prophecy, towards something that is at least intelligible. He's just trying to reorient their values. Speak in words that everyone can understand. Hearing intelligible words is important. Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that builds the church. And how can you understand the truth about Jesus unless it comes to you in words that you can understand? In fact, even to unbelievers, the gospel truth about Jesus Christ comes in intelligible words, Paul says in verses 21 to 25. If the unbeliever, the the inquirer comes into your church meetings and and sees you all speaking in tongues, what will they think? Will they they be impressed? Will they think, wow, this this is how spiritual are these people? That's what the Corinthians thought. But Paul says, no, they'll think you're mad. They won't be impressed at all. But if they hear intelligible words, then perhaps they will be convicted of sin. And persuaded of the gospel. And isn't it interesting? Whatever way you want to build the church of Jesus Christ, be you want to build it in numbers or be you want to build it in mature maturity, whether you want to strengthen it, whatever way it is, what's the answer? Speak the understandable words of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the church will be built. Who he is, what he's done for us, what he's promised that he will do when he returns again. It's all the same message, it's all the same content, it's all the same person. It's all the same Lord. Now, I still haven't defined tongues and prophecy, have I? And I'm not going to yet, I've got to keep you listening somehow. Because Paul has another point that he wants to make. And in the process, he tells us a little bit more that will help us to understand tongues and prophecy when we get there. Uh, Because the church that love builds is not just edifying and intelligible, it's also orderly. And so let me just make a few uh, very quick observations from verses 26 to 40. Uh, There seems to be another barrier to clear communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ going on in Corinth. And this time the barrier is not whether or not you can understand the words that are being spoken. This time is whether or not you can even hear them at all. Uh, It seems like people are are speaking over the top of one another in Corinth. Everyone's speaking in tongues or prophesying or praying kind of all at once, even maybe trying to outdo one another and, and impress one another. All sorts of things. It's chaos. And so Paul spends verses 26 to 33, making really what I think is quite a simple point. Maybe if you're really trying to be a loving church where the gospel of Jesus Christ can be clearly understood, 
maybe try speaking one at a time. (laughs) Maybe try speaking in turn uh, so that each one can have a go. Uh, But rather than showing off and trying to outdo each other and speak over the top of each other, uh, just one at a time, please, so that everyone might be built up. And again, seeing the focus is on building up the church, edification for everyone, verse 28, uh, Paul does remind them that if there is no interpreter, uh, then a person who speaks in tongues should keep what they have to say between them and God. And, you know, uh, don't try interrupting one another and saying that somehow you have to speak now because uh, the Holy Spirit has moved within you because, verse 32, the spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. God is not a God of disorder but of peace. So keep it orderly, so everyone may be heard in turn. And I do wonder whether or not verses 34 and 35 should also be read uh, about the same issue. Uh, Paul does speak directly to the Corinthian women in these verses, and he asks them to remain silent. Uh, Not to say that they should not take their place in what is going on up the front of church. After all, a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul expects the Corinthian women to prophesy and to pray, and I presume to do many other things within the church, and for that to be of the benefit of all. Uh, But if the issue here is too many people speaking at once, well, uh, maybe what is happening uh, even uh, in the congregation is distracting people, or maybe the the chattering is itself uh, people being distracted from what is happening. And so uh, maybe uh, what they need to do is uh, not be a distraction to others during the service, but actually hold their questions until the end and ask the appropriate person then. And if that is what Paul is talking about, then I would take it that this might have been a particular problem for the Corinthian women then, uh, but it's certainly possible that it could be a problem for either gender now and that we all ought to pay attention to it. But really, the overall principle seems very simple to me. In verse 40, when Paul summarizes this section, he says this, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Not only should you be able to understand what is going on in church, it's intelligible words, a language that we can all comprehend. We should actually be able to hear the words, one person speaking at a time in an orderly fashion. And that's the church that love builds. It's as simple as that. Okay, so what about speaking in tongues and prophecy? Well, at one level, I hope you can see that you can actually understand this passage. And there are important principles here for us in our church and for following the excellent way of love uh, that we we can comprehend without precisely knowing what speaking in tongues and prophecy is. Uh, We do know that it should be intelligent. We should know that it should be orderly. We should be able to hear and understand everything that goes on in church. And that's what a church uh, that is following the excellent way of love will be like. And there are kind of versions of this sermon where we just kind of stop now. Much shorter versions of this sermon as well, might I add, where we just kind of stop now and we just think a little bit about what those principles mean for us as a church. Uh, But we do want to know, don't we? And so far, everyone today has wanted to know. So what does Paul mean by prophecy and speaking in tongues? Let's talk about that for a moment. Well, uh, here there is a problem, a big one. You see, when I pray, 
I am quite sure that I am doing what New Testament Christians did. And that's because in the New Testament we have plenty of examples of prayers. In fact, we even have whole prayers written out for us. And so if I want to learn how to pray, there are passages I can read. I can uh, read about Jesus and his prayer life. I can read about the prayer life of the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. There's lots of examples for me. And likewise, when I teach, I'm sure that I'm essentially doing what they did back in New Testament times as well. Again, because there's lots of examples of teaching in the New Testament. In fact, there are whole sermons written out for us. Although I'm not quite sure I can imagine the Apostle Paul telling that story about the man and his lawnmower. However, there are some things that people do in the New Testament that we don't know for sure exactly what they were. Some of them only have one New Testament reference or maybe only just a handful of New Testament references. And we don't know for sure if some of the things that Christians do today and are given these same names are the same as the phenomena that is called by that name back in the New Testament. Are they a different experience that has just been given the same name? That's an important question to ask. And speaking in tongues and prophecy do somewhat fall into this second category. We are not quite sure what these things are. Uh, There has been a great deal of research and study on the topic. There is uh, many books and many articles written about these things. But still, there is a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, Of course, not everyone is uncertain. There are always people out there who are absolutely certain that they have rediscovered New uh, New Testament prophecy or New Testament speaking in tongues. But I'm not sure that anyone does know exactly. But even I could be wrong about that. The problem is the lack of information. And what information we do have often contradicts with the modern phenomena. There is some information we can glean from passages like 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Both are forms of speech. Both are controllable and can be done in an orderly way. Tongues have a meaning, verse 10. They aren't gibberish and they can be interpreted even though the one who's speaking in a tongue, verse 14, doesn't actually understand what it is that they're saying. Also, prophecy, in verse 18, is a form of instruction. It's somewhat adjacent to teaching. Prophecy also needs to be weighed, in verse 29, by others. And there are some examples in the New Testament of speaking in tongues and prophecy. So, there are three examples of speaking in tongues in the New Testament. You can find them in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. And they're there for very specific purposes that would really require a whole series in the book of Acts for us to understand in depth. But uh, in those three places, only in one of them in Acts chapter 2, is the actual phenomenon of speaking in tongues described. And there, tongue speaking is, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, tongue speaking is speaking the praises of the praises of God in a language that the speaker does not actually understand. Uh, It's not the spiritual ability to speak a new language. It's just that the words that come out are another human language that's not understandable by the speaker, but on that day was understandable by the audience. 
Because on that day, it was the festival of Pentecost. Jews from across the Roman Empire had gathered. Jews from the the four corners of the Roman Empire who all spoke different languages. They came and what did they hear from these men, these women? They heard the praises of God spoken in their languages, in their mother tongues. And I think that that's consistent with all the other New Testament references to, to tongue speaking. But it is somewhat inconsistent with what many people call tongue speaking today and I never really know quite what to say about that except to shrug my shoulders and point them again to the scriptures. Prophecy is even more complicated. Uh, There are only two references in the book of Acts to prophecy, Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 21 and only in 21 is it actually described. Acts 21 is the story, some of you may know, it's the story of Agabus who who comes to the Apostle Paul and makes a spontaneous prophecy. He takes off his belt and he he binds himself up and he says to Paul, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. And the very interesting thing about Acts 21 is the Apostle Paul proceeds to completely ignore the prophecy and go to Jerusalem anyway because he thinks that that's what God wants him to do and so that's what he does. Uh, But Prophecy in the Bible, both in Old and New Testament, is always fallible. And so it always has to be tested against the infallible Word of God. Sometimes prophecy can be true and sometimes it can be false. You can read about that in Acts chapter, sorry, Matthew 7 15. Sometimes prophets can be true and prophets can be false. Jeremiah 23 is a great place to read about that. And sometimes prophecy can be true, but not even from God. Titus chapter 1, verse 12. And sometimes prophecy can arise spontaneously, and sometimes prophecy can arise through the diligent study of the Scriptures. It seems to be quite broad in the New Testament. And so the best way I think that I can sum it up is to say that prophecy is not always about the future, although sometimes it is. Instead, prophecy is a way of speaking in which the truth can be spoken. A way of speaking in which the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ can be spoken. But it must always be tested against the infallible word of God. And so if Paul is very keen on us prophesying as opposed to speaking in tongues, I guess the obvious question is, where do we prophesy in our church? I've yet to to come to St. Matthew's and to come to one of our services and hear anyone stand up and say, now's the prophecy time, now we're all going to kind of prophesy or something like that. So where is it that we do it? And I wonder whether or not, and this is my opinion, meaning you can take it or leave it, I wonder whether or not the place where we prophesy in our church is actually in our hub groups, in our small groups. There we gather and we share together. Sometimes spontaneously and sometimes through the diligent study of the scriptures. But every time we bring those words to the group and especially to the leader, uh, so they might might be tested against the measure of the scriptures, evaluated by the word of God. And I've been growing surer of my understanding of this over many years now, although I'm not yet sure enough to go away and call our small groups prophecy groups or anything like that. I think that would uh, give the wrong idea. We could talk more about this. There's much more that could be said. And please, if you've got questions, do come and speak to me afterwards. 
But I do hope you can understand and see that what 1 Corinthians 14 has to say to us as a church is not reliant on a precise definition of tongues or prophecy. And even that if I'm wrong in my definitions, which I very well could be, Paul is clear on what a church following the most excellent way of love will look like. It will be edifying as we seek to build each other up. It will be intelligible as understandable words, the understandable words of the gospel of Jesus Christ are spoken. And it will be orderly. We will actually be able to hear and even to follow what is going on. Because how else can we hear the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ if it is not understandable and orderly? And so let me just ask you two questions to finish up. Two quick questions. Does building the church of Jesus Christ matter to you? That's what you all want to do if you are following the most excellent way of love that Paul has outlined for us in 1 Corinthians. We will want to build the church. Paul wants to see in them and in us a deep longing to build the church. A deep longing to be heavily involved in the church of Jesus Christ. Not a a longing for impressive spiritual experiences. Uh, Not a a deep longing for for self-edification and what we can get out of being part of a church. But a deep longing to edify others. Is that something that we need to hear? What are your own desires for the Christian life? What are your own hopes for Uni Church? Jesus is building his church. And remarkably, those that Jesus calls to himself, Jesus also invites to be part of the very same building project. And the Holy Spirit gifts us accordingly. And we don't need to understand what tongues or prophecy are if what matters to us is that we strive to abound in the building of Jesus' church. Having the, the truth of Jesus lovingly spoken and heard amongst us in words that we understand, in ways that we can hear and and, and follow, whether it's taught or announced or whispered or or sung or, or prophesied or interpreted. What matters is that we let the word of Christ dwell among us richly. Strive to abound in the truth about Jesus. Is that not what we want for our church? Do we have a deep longing to see people to come to our church so that they can hear and understand the gospel news of Jesus Christ? Are we confident that this is a place where that can happen? Have we escaped from the self-centeredness that is so much part of our nature and is so fostered and fed by our society? Have we learned to pursue love and the building up of others, especially when we come together? with all that the Spirit has given us. And if you are eager to build Jesus' church, is this the kind of church that you want to build? It's a very ordinary picture of church that 1 Corinthians 14 paints for us. The application of this passage is quite simple. Everything understandable. Everything Orderly, everything 
sensible. That's a very ordinary picture of church, isn't it? It might not necessarily be what we immediately think of when we think of a loving church. It certainly might not be what we think of immediately when we think of a spiritual church either. But Paul is clear. This sort of church is both. Often I think we're led to believe that something understandable and and orderly, something rational, cannot itself be something spiritual. That somehow there is an incompatibility between what is rational and what is spiritual. And that for us to truly enjoy our spiritual experience, we must somehow have to let go of the thinking part of our brains and embrace something that we can't understand. Something that must be mysterious, it must be unexplainable, it must be otherworldly if it's to be spiritual. Let go of the intellectual and embrace the spiritual. And to that Paul would say, stop thinking like children. Grow up. Christian spirituality is rational and it's intellectual. Because Christian spirituality is the understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you remember where we began just a few weeks ago in chapter 12? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is the intelligibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads to true Christian spirituality. And so, of course, true Christian spirituality will lead to the intelligible communication of that same gospel. But it is love that drives it all. Lack of love is what's destroying the Corinthians. And no spiritual thing is worth anything without love. And so it's this picture of church that we should aspire to be. Ordinary in so many ways. And yet behind it is an extraordinary love. And an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. As we seek not self, but to build each other up in the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given to us today. Thank you that we can understand it. Thank you that we can hear it. And therefore, we can be shaped by it. Thank you that we can learn the most excellent way of love as we seek to build each other up as a church. Lord, we pray that you would foster in each one of us the earnest desire to build the church of Jesus Christ. Give us a willingness to set aside any self-interest for the sake of using everything you have given us for the good of your people. Help us to delight in the very ordinary picture of church that you have given for us here. An ordinary picture of a church extraordinary in both love and things of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to aspire to be this kind of church. And help us, Lord, to be content to be this kind of church. Because it's this kind of church that confesses that Jesus is Lord. Amen.